Abraham's tithe. That is the section or the title of today's message. We're in Genesis chapter 14, our second message out of Genesis 14. The first message was essentially Abraham's war. This is Abraham's tithe. And we pick up in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, but a a quick recap of the first half. The kings of the world that Abraham lived in went to war. And it wasn't just Abraham that lived there, but his nephew Lot and his nephew and his family living in Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom properly, uh, were caught up in this war and ultimately carried off by their enemies. Abram got news of this through an escapee and went to rescue his nephew Lot and ultimately armed his 318 trained servants who were born at his own house, says verse 14, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And that's roughly 150 miles of pursuit. That's a great pursuit. They mounted up and went to war. And they had some help, some help from non-worshippers of Yahweh, some help from some of their neighbors and friends. And they went to war against these aggressors, and ultimately Abram won the battle by the grace of God with his 318 trained and armed men and brought Lot and his wife and uh, all the rest of those that have been captured and all of their household effects, brought it all back safe and sound. The Lord gave them victory. And then we pick up in verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Ketolaramar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. And so there are effectively two halves. When you think about this portion of Genesis chapter 14, the first half, uh, the rejection or rejecting the king of Sodom, and the second half, honoring the king of Salem. And I debated as to which half to preach first, because it's kind of divided up. Verse 17 opens with the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom defers to Melchizedek, king of Salem, and you deal with uh, the tithe and, and the worship of the Most High God, and then it goes back to the king of Sodom. But for the sake of being ordered in my mind, and I trust your mind, we'll start where it starts, verse 17, with the rejection of the king of Sodom, And then we'll move to the honoring of the king of Salem. And so rejecting the king of Sodom, first point, verse 17, 
The king of Sodom went out to meet him, meet Abram. Abraham's coming back, the conquering hero. Abraham's coming back with his 318 men plus his friends, his associates and their men. They're coming back, the victors of the day. This great rout and Abraham's not lost a single man. God is glorified in this. It's a terrific victory. And they are met when they return First, by the king of Sodom. We know the king of Sodom is not a righteous man. It's a very short time later that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Lot's rescue from Sodom and Gomorrah takes place. And so we we must assume that the king of Sodom is part of this whole Sodomite culture that is reigning, that is running rampant in Sodom at the time of Lot's rescue. We also reflect... Uh, upon that battle that the king of Sodom was routed. The king of Sodom fled. And now he's coming somewhat humbled to Abram, who was given victory. So the king of Sodom was routed by his enemies, and he approaches Abram first. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes on the scene, and the king of Sodom bows out to the forefront. Nevertheless, We pick up in verse 21 again. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And it's true that these were the citizens of the king of Sodom's kingdom. And so it's reasonable on one level for him to say, Give me the persons, except that he was the defeated king. And Abram, who is new to town, so to speak, living out there in the wilds, Abram is the victorious tent dweller. And so I see it as somewhat bold of him to say, give me the persons and you take the goods. Others might say it's, it's generous since the goods came from his kingdom. And so he's offering up the goods. But really, I, it seems that in that world especially, that he just ought to see what Abram says, perhaps. Regardless of his motives and the exact right or wrong of him saying, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself, we find something in Abram's response that is just glorious. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." What a glorious statement. And it reveals Abram's heart. Some march to war for self-glory. Some march to war for enrichment. Abram marched to war for God. And that is the way to go to war every day of your life. Every day is a battle for the glory of God. Every day is a battle for righteousness. Every day is a battle for eternal souls. Every day, whether we're conscious of it or not, and we need to be conscious of it, the battle rages. And we, by the grace of God, need to be engaged, not just conscious, but consciously engaged in the battle, prayerfully for the glory of God. Whether we're going to work to make a living, we're not making the living ultimately for self-enrichment. We're not making the living ultimately for our own comforts. We're making the living for the glory of God. Of God. So whether we're battling weeds as a farmer or battling stubborn steers as a rancher, 
or battling fellow businesses, competing businesses as a businessman, or battling lazy employees <laughs> as an employer and trying to encourage them to diligence, uh, we are to do so for the glory of God, for the honor of God, not for self. And so Abram exemplifies this motive, this heart, saying, I've raised my hand to the Lord God, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, I made a broad application of this, but let's keep it in its real-time context of warfare. Abram went to war, and to again say the Bible clearly denotes, clearly records, clearly upholds the idea of just war. There are just wars. There are evil men and evil incidents that require good men to stand up and to go to war, whether it's a police officer going to war in a one-on-one kind of combative situation to protect the innocent, or whether it's an actual army of some sorts, or even a, uh, what might be called a ragtag army of 318 trained servants, Abram and his servants riding out to war 150 miles away. Regardless, the Bible justifies such that there, there are evil men that need to be held in check by armed men who are trained, willing, and able to use those arms to stop evil men from doing evil deeds. And the motive ought to be for the glory of God, for the love of God, and the love of neighbor. And we see, I think, that heart in our elder brother Abram. As he says, I raised my hand to the Lord God most high, that the possessor of heaven, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. Now, beyond having the right motive to glorify God, having the right motive to love God and love neighbor, I also see in Abram a concern about holiness. A concern that he would not be defiled by Sodom or the king of Sodom or his possessions. That he would not get caught up in them. And you recall that when Abram in the previous chapter gave Lot the choice of anywhere he could go, Lot looked over to the riches of Sodom and went toward Sodom. And we already know the effect that that had on him. Well, he got caught up in Sodom's war and he got drug off as a captive due to that. And we know where it's going to lead later. He will lose his son-in-laws. He will lose his wife and his daughters are perverted by this culture and terrible, nightmarish, perverse things happen to Lot and his family. And so Abram seems to be conscious of this unholy element in Sodom, this evil element. And he doesn't want so much as a thread or a sandal strap from Sodom or the king of Sodom. And he also is jealous for the glory of God. So it seems he's concerned for purity, he's concerned for holiness. And he is clearly, evidently, jealous for God's glory. Lest Sodom, the king of Sodom, make Abram rich, and 
claim that I have made Abram rich. Abram went off and he took advantage of the situation and he took my wealth. I have made Abram rich. And Abram wants God to get the glory for God's blessings on Abram and his life. And you'll recall that the previous chapter already declared him rich. He was already rich. I mean, he has 318 armed, trained servants. That would speak of riches. And these are the servants that went off to war. No doubt they did not leave all the herds and so forth, destitute, to wander, unwatched over and untended. And so he's already rich with God's blessings. Where Lot went after the world's riches, he ends up impoverished and captive. Where Abram abided in faith out in the wilderness, trusting God, he grew richer and stronger. And he would have God get the glory for it, not the king of Sodom or the kingdom of Sodom. And so I don't want a thread. I don't want a sandal strap. I don't want to take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 24, except only what the young men have eaten in the portion of the men who went with me. And so a reasonable expense or a repayment of the food that they have eaten uh, in their journey. And then notice that he does not apply his standard. He does not apply his righteous stand and his concern for the glory of God. His concern, I think also, although it's not clearly stated, but his concern for purity and holiness. He does not force that upon his non-believing friends, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So these are the world's effects. The world can have them. I want no part of them is Abram's heart. And so Abram is not quick to make the most of every opportunity here to advance himself, to enrich himself. He is quick to distinguish himself from non-believers and to say, for them it's fine, for me I don't want a thread. I don't want to be tainted and I don't want anything to be taken from the glory of God and His blessing. God gave me the victory today and God gave me the riches yesterday and you'll get no credit for any of it. King of Sodom. By way of application in our world today, and specifically in our city, Portland Mayor Sam Adams, back in 2007, had much in common with the king of Sodom. Sam Adams was one of the first openly homosexual mayors of a major city in America. And I don't know if you recall that it was, it was a scandal. We forget how it's changed. It was appalling to much of America that Portland had an openly homosexual mayor. But it gets worse. Sam Adams was one of the first openly homosexual mayors of a major city in America. Sam Adams was also embroiled in a scandal as he was sworn into the mayoral office due to his sexual relationship with a 17-year-old male intern. And I thought, surely the Lord has exposed his sin and his crime in order to protect our city and other cities from mainstreaming perversion. And tragically, that was not so. The press protected him. The media protected him. And so did the government officials. 
He was not held accountable for his crime. Much like the king of Sodom, Sam Adams also had financial ties with worshipers of the God Most High. Luis Palau and his son Kevin Palau united with Sam Adams in what they called gospel or evangelism ministry, and thus had Sam Adams stand on the podium at a Luis Palau festival in downtown Portland to give Portland's openly homosexual mayor in the midst of his scandal with a 17-year-old intern a giant check from monies that were collected from Portland-area local churches. Essentially, Luis and Kevin Palau sought to purchase goodwill from the Romans' one God-hating culture and an open door for the gospel by uniting with the king of Sodom and giving him the tithes and offerings of Sodom's local churches. Kevin Palau went on to travel with Sam Adams to other major cities to model and export their church, pay off, and unite with Sodom evangelism model. Kevin Plow went on further to write a book on all of this and to outline what Romans 1, 18-32 apostate evangelism looks like because that's what it is. So that it could be adopted more broadly by America's church. Hear this, dear brothers and sisters. God's law is perfect, converting the soul. We don't apologize for God's law. We preach to Sam Adams and every other to repent of their infraction, their radical rebellion against God's law, and to be saved. And the church doesn't need Sam Adams' help to strengthen the gospel. No, the church needs to speak as God's prophet, God's preachers, proclaiming God's law as the holy standard of God, the divine standard of good and evil, in order that it might be a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith. Proclaiming the gospel as the power of God and to salvation, which is what the Bible says it is, and it is. Declaring and preaching the word of God that is able to make men wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, which is what the word of God says about the word of God. Believing God, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith does not come by holding hands with the homosexual mayor of our city in the midst of his sex scandal with a 17-year-old intern and giving him a check from the tithes and offerings of local churches. What a terrible, terrible design for ministry. How tragic. Praise God. The word is clear in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I think it's It's that kind of biblical conviction, although yet to be written years later after Abram, it was that kind of biblical conviction that drove Abram to say, look, I don't want a thread. I don't want a sandal strap. I want God to get all the glory, and I don't want me or my men or my people to be tainted by Sodom. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? It is madness for the church to gather together to raise tithes and offerings and to give it to the homosexual mayor thinking that that's going to enhance the power of the gospel in the community. Thinking that that's biblical evangelism. 
That will not strengthen the power of the gospel. The gospel is sufficient to save all of those for whom Christ pronounced to telestai. It is finished. Every single man, woman, and child that Christ pronounced to telestai over will in God's time hear the gospel, repent of sin, and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Not one will be lost. But God has his means. And his means is not through compromise. His means is not through yoking the people of God with the people of the world. Not through taking their monies or giving them ours to gain favor or good will. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so by the grace of God, Christ's church today follows the example of Abram and says, look, I don't want a thread. I don't want a sandal strap. I don't want your money. I don't even really want your permission to meet. I praise God for the First Amendment. But if evil men take the First Amendment from us, if they burn it as they're attempting to do right now, we will yet meet we will yet congregate. And by the grace of God, we will yet preach the full counsel of God's word in the congregation of the saints and in our fair city until they jail us to stop us. Because that's the mission. That's the command of Christ. That's what we see our forefathers doing in the pages of scriptures before us. And because Christ is worthy of our suffering. He is worthy of persecution. Praise God that we live in a nation blessed by providence with such freedom that we have enjoyed for several hundred years. But those freedoms are being threatened. But that does not mean, should they strip those freedoms, that we change anything. We press on trusting the Lord and bearing whatever brand, whatever persecution they would bring. But we don't ask permission for the church to meet. We don't ask permission for the church to preach the word of God. We don't ask permission for parents to teach children that boys are boys and girls are girls and never between do the two mix except in holy matrimony. One man, one woman for life. No, we don't ask permission. We don't apologize. We proclaim the truth out of love of God and love of neighbor. As for Sam Adams, we love him. Therefore, we'll not compromise the gospel that he so desperately needs. As for Sam Adams, we love him, therefore will not compromise the offense of the law that he desperately needs. Mr. Adams, you must repent or you're going to perish in your sins and go to hell. And Mr. Adams, we resent you putting your homosexuality on display. We resent your relationship with a 17-year-old intern, putting your perversion on display and helping to damn souls as you lead them to hell. May God grant you Repentance. That's our message from Mr. Adams. Not, would you please be my gospel partner and we have a big check for you. And would you then travel to New York City so we can export this new model of evangelism to other cities. That was not loving to Sam Adams nor toward our city or our nation. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. He is the authority. 
any authority that would contradict his great commission is to be ignored. We're to obey Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we don't need the permission nor the goodwill of Sam Adams or any other mayor, senator, representative, or governor, or president. Christ is the king. We serve him. Rejecting the king of Sodom. Abram rejected the king of Sodom, honoring the king of Salem. In contrast, he honors the king of Salem. In verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, El Elyon, God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abram honors the king of Salem because the king of Salem honors the God most high. The king of Salem is a priest king. The king of Salem is a type of Christ. There are some who think it was a pre-incarnate visit of Christ. I do not. I don't think the text supports that. There are some that think, in fact, rabbinical priests taught for centuries that it was Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Shem yet still alive, wandering out of the desert of Canaan um, as the king of Salem, the priest of Salem. And again, I don't think there's any biblical justification for that. I think he is a Canaanite. I think the Lord in his grace revealed himself to him and is a worshiper of the one true God. And I think he serves as a type of Christ. I don't think I know that he does because the New Testament declares it as such. And let's look to that briefly in Hebrews chapter 6 and then 7. Hebrews 6 verse 19, we'll just use this. I'm going to try not to preach Hebrews six nineteen through 7. It could be a whole sermon series there, but just as a commentary on Genesis 14, and it does give us some insight into Genesis 14. So Hebrews 6, 19, keeping your hand in Genesis 14, it says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Young Bible college students really like to grab onto terms like that, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Um, it sounds really theological and intelligent. Uh, but that's what it is. It's the Melchizedekian priesthood, and Christ comes of the line of Melchizedek. No beginning, no end, eternal. We, we get no genealogy. We get no heritage. We don't know much about Melchizedek. Um, now, with Jesus, we do get his genealogy. We do get his heritage, but... But like Melchizedek, he has no beginning, he has no end. And he, it says, went behind the veil, the presence behind the veil in the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Hebrews says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we learn that he was a genuine priest of the Most High God. There are some that seem to question whether he was an actual man of God, an actual Yahweh worshiper, a worshiper of the great I am, or if he just used the same terms for the one true God or for his idol as we do for the one true God. But the New Testament confirms 
that he was a priest of the Most High God who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Last week, I, or two weeks ago, when I preached the first half of Genesis 14, I told you there were, there were some Christians, some commentators, some preachers who liked to downplay the warfare that Abram engaged in and suggest that Abram went there and basically caught his enemies at night and shook the tents and they were scared, so they ran off. Um, no, he returned from the slaughter. He returned from the slaughter. Real warfare, real warriors. So returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, verse 2, to whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, so Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And the whole point of that, without preaching that in depth, the whole point of that is to say that Jesus Christ's priesthood priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical tribe, superior to that of Israel in their tabernacle and in their temple. It is Melchizedekian priesthood, and that long before the law, long before Levi and the priesthood that would come, Abram essentially bowed before the priest Melchizedek and offered tithes to him and to his superior priesthood that Christ now has come with. That's the whole point of Hebrews 7 and the comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. That Abram, with all his seed in him, with the entire tribe of Israel in him, bowed before Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, and offered up tithes to him. And now Israel should bow to Jesus, who has come with a superior priesthood to that of Levi. As the final high priest of the God Most High, with the final sacrifice to the God Most High, not of lamb or bull, but of himself on the cross. And so back to Genesis 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. So he brought out bread and wine. There are those that that run far with the bread and wine. I will say it would seem to be a type, since Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and Hebrews justifies uh, seeing him as a type of Christ, and his priesthood as a type of Christ's priesthood. I will say it's no accident that he brought out bread and wine which would for us be remembrance of Christ's high priestly sacrifice of himself, his broken body and his shed blood. 
it is no accident, it is perfect providence that he did it, and it's perfect providence that it was recorded in Genesis 14 for us. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High. It would seem, and again, there are those that run further with it than I I can justify, but it would seem perhaps even just like Israel with its sacrifice of lamb after lamb after lamb was depicting the Lamb of God who would come, as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Perhaps Melchizedek wasn't just bringing out bread and wine for a snack, a post-war snack, but as part of worship of the Melchizedek who would come. Perhaps Melchizedek had prophetic word not recorded, we don't know, of the Christ who would come in his broken body and shed blood. Like Israel looking ahead to the Lamb who would come, the sacrifice of God, not a sacrifice, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. We'll not know fully what he understood or fully what he was doing with the bread and wine until we meet him, or the Lord reveals it to us when we meet the Lord. But it's worthy of some level of speculation. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high. Clearly, Melchizedek is associating his God most high with Abram's God most high as one and the same God most high. This is not an idol worshiper coming to Abram and saying, Hey, we're all the same. This is rather a man that God has revealed himself to. So blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, Hebrews makes the point that the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abram, and Abram has in him all his lineage, all his seed, including Levi, says that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the priesthood that would come from Abram, which means Christ's priesthood is superior, and they should bow to it and receive it. So blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. The God that Melchizedek is speaking of is the God most high, not a God, the God most high, the one true God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the creator, the sustainer, the possessor of heaven and earth, the God, not a God that men create, but the God who created and possesses his creation. Verse 20, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so in contrast to the threat that Abram saw with the king of Sodom, taking the credit of Abraham's blessings away from God, here the king of Salem is giving the one true God all his due, all his glory and making a point to do so. Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. May his name be praised. May he be honored. This is cause for worship. Notice too that the king of Sodom came to conduct business. All right, I want the people, you take the goods. The king of Salem wants to conduct worship of the one true God who gave the victory on the battlefield. And so let's keep worship before business and we will be blessed. 
especially in issues of life and death, life and death. Keep worship ahead of business. We all have to deal with life and death in our families at some juncture. Keep worship ahead of business and you'll be blessed. Keep worship ahead of the thread and the sandal straps and you'll be blessed. Guard yourselves. Guard your families. Keep the eternal priorities first. The spiritual priorities first. And great blessing will follow. And then this last little statement here. And he gave him a tithe of all. I confess I was tempted to expound further on delivered your enemies into your hand. Again to say that Abram's war was a righteous war. The slaughter that Hebrews speaks of was a righteous slaughter. God gave his enemies into his hand. Hear me, not a sparrow falls to the ground except the Lord allows it. When the police officer pulls the trigger in a just shooting and the criminal dies, it really wasn't the police officer. It was the hand of God that brought justice. And the police officer was an agent, a minister of God, bringing justice. Back to the final statement. And he gave him a tithe of all. He gave him a tithe of all. This is the first mention of tithe. It's the first time tithe is used in the word of God. And you'll find it certainly throughout the Old Testament and and the concept of tithes and offerings throughout the New Testament as well. The term tithe is fairly popular in the body of Christ, or it has been traditionally. It's fallen on hard times. They're anti-tithers, and the word tithe uh, being mentioned will evoke from some uh, the the ready statement they're they're ready with. It's a knee-jerk statement. We're not under a tithe. Uh, When I say tithe, when most Christians, biblical-minded Christians say tithe, they're not speaking of you being under a law of tithing. And let me ask you, was Abram obeying a law of tithing? There's no evidence of that. What we find him is giving a free will tithe, giving a spontaneous tithe out of love of God and worship of God to a priest king who comes in the name of God. And we find that long before the law was ever given. And so he gave a tithe of all. Simple statement. Of all, not of a portion. The whole net versus gross debate, I think is settled there, frankly. A tithe of all. But you have your own conscience before God, and I'll not debate it with you as your conscience leads you. But if you get caught up in law, then you get caught up in net gross arguments. (laughs) If you get the Spirit of God and what the Spirit is communicating from Genesis to Revelation, then you don't get caught up in arguments over net and gross. But he gave him a tithe of all. The pattern of tithing exemplified here preceded the law and continues as a principle and pattern after the law. I wrote this statement to the church well over a year ago, toward the beginning of our ongoing experience with the Fauci China virus pandemic. Quote, A sincere loathing for charlatan TBN word of faith charismatic abuses has compelled me to never preach a sermon on tithing. 
However, one day I will need to preach on it in order to be a responsible pastor who preaches the whole counsel of God for the blessing of Christ's church. I don't know what anyone gives to the church, and I never have. This I know, God's word is true. He promises blessings for those who tithe with faith, and I've experienced the truth of his promise throughout my Christian life. Well, the day for me to preach a sermon on tithing has come, and I have, what, 15 or so minutes left to do it. So I strategically (laughs) left 15 minutes. The Word of God is really clear, and there's really no argument with it. And so we'll just look at what the Word of God says. Here's what God's Word says on tithing. Let's begin in Proverbs, wisdom literature. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. And we're going to have to move relatively quickly to get through these texts. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This is wisdom literature on tithing or giving or offerings. Honor your Lord with your possessions, says the word of God, the wisdom literature of God. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. The first fruits, net or gross, you tell me. With the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And so while there are gross abuses in the Word of Faith, TBN community, and more broadly than that, historically, the Roman Catholic Church, and you could probably find present-day examples as well, and certainly more broadly than that, there are churches in our own community of all sorts and kinds that, that uh, for various reasons, are compelled to push, push, push uh, folks to give. It's a business model, church growth idea that you, you've got to build something every, I think it's 10 years, they say, or five years. And if you're building something, then you've got to compel the people to give to it. And, and then that gives people ownership and they feel like they're part of it. And it's this whole business model of getting people involved and growing the church. And we don't want any part of that. What we do want part of is what God says about how we're to handle our monies, because our monies are what? His monies that he has provided. And so he says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So the idea is if we hoard up the whole, we end up with less. If we give to the Lord, we end up with more. We end up with his blessing. If we exercise faith, God blesses his children and he's in a good position to do so. If we exercise no faith, right, I got this, I got to keep this, I got to protect this, then we're in a good position to be chastened, to lose what we've worked so hard to get and what we've worked so hard to protect. And by the way, there's no joy in that, and there's much joy in exercising faith and trusting the Lord and effectively loving the Lord and loving neighbor with the provisions the Lord has given So tithing is an exercise of faith in our Heavenly Father who provides everything we have. Our education, our training, our health, our vision, hearing, strength, intelligence, work ethic, opportunities, freedom, safety, jobs, careers, businesses, paychecks, savings, investments, homes, etc. We're either exercising faith in our material wealth or we're not. Or I should say perhaps we're either exercising faith in God or exercising faith in self. And we want to exercise faith in God, to honor the Lord with our possessions and the first fruits of all our increase. 
knowing that if God so wills, that's the means by which we put ourselves in a position where he can bless us as his children, that our barns would be filled with plenty and our vats would overflow with new wine. Parents, disobedient children, don't get ice cream, right? They don't get the cookie. (laughs) They don't. Don't reward disobedience with cookies and ice cream. God doesn't. God doesn't. And so let's, as adult kids of God, honor the Lord with the first fruits of all our possessions, all our increase. And he will be in a position as a faithful father to bless us. Again, we got to move fairly quickly, so let us look to Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes in this storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor should the vine fail to bear fruit in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So we find again, consistent with Proverbs chapter 3, 9 through 10, God's promise of blessing on those who tithe in faith. It's not just a TBN, charlatan, word of faith idea. Now they abuse this truth, but it's truth nevertheless. It doesn't change because it's abused. It's not negated by their abuse. God's word promises blessings when we give tithes and offerings to the Lord, when we exercise faith, when we love God and put his mission first. Moving to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, and we're, we're doing fairly well. Got at least 10 minutes left here. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. And so on a practical level, In the New Testament era, what happens with our tithes and offerings? Well, of course, we bless and care for saints who are in points of hardship, and we have done that over the years, and every faithful church does. Of course, we keep the lights on and pay for the building and and so forth, as local churches do, and fees and so forth as they are incurred. We buy Bibles, we buy tracts to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out, we support the planting of other churches and mission works. But part of the primary application or use of tithes and offerings in the New Testament church is so that the ox will not be muzzled, so the laborer will be free to labor. We don't want the ox muzzled while it treads out the grain. We want to unmuzzle the oxen so that they'll be free to preach the word without distraction. And the word of God is clear that the labor is worthy of his wages. There are denominations where uh, they, by conviction, not biblical conviction, but they will not pay elders, they will not pay pastors, and they all are lay elders, 
And they think that that is a superior design, and yet it's contrary to the Word of God. And so we want to obey the Scripture. We want to free up men to preach the Word, to study, to show themselves approved, both in the pulpit, mind you, and out on the street in the world, that they might, like the early church, turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might fill their city with the doctrine of Christ. And so we want to free men up to do that, and that's God's design. Elders who labor much in word and doctrine are to be unmuzzled oxen laboring in the Lord's field of harvest for the glory of God, for the edification of the saints, and for the salvation of the elect. And that's the teaching of 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Galatians 6, 6. Galatians 6, 6 says, Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Galatians 6, 6. Same concept. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Um, Elders who labor much preaching the word of God in the pulpit and in the street, again, have given up the financial opportunities and security of laboring in a secular profession. They trust God to provide for them as they labor in the Lord's field of harvest. Christians who serve God in secular professions are given provision from God for their families and for the furtherance of the gospel in the earth through the local church. That's God's good design. And every elder is to do the work of the evangelist. Every elder is to preach the word whether in season or out of season, not just pulpit, but pulpit and out in the community. And it's God's design, kind of like in the home, it's God's design for the husband to provide for his family, to free the mother, to raise up godly offspring. Not that the father's not engaged in raising godly offspring, but he must go out and fight those weeds, right? Fight the world to bring home the provision so that mother can be free to dedicate herself to the most important thing, which is eternal souls, So it's a division of labor in the home, and similarly, there's a division of labor in the local church. God calls men to be elders, and he would have them as unmuzzled oxen to be free to preach the word for his glory, for the sanctification of saints, and for the salvation of sinners. And that moves us to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 14. Unfortunately, the Apostle Paul here is having to correct the Corinthian church for one more offense for one more error. The Corinthian church had many errors, many, many issues he had to correct. And here's another. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 14. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Gospel ministry is warfare. Thus, the Apostle Paul says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit. Gospel ministry, pastoral ministry is farming. You're sowing the seed of the word of God. Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Pastoral ministry is pastoral. It is shepherding. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our Sakes. For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, that he who threshes in hope should be, should be a partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ." 
Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. God's good design for the furtherance of the gospel in the earth. The Apostle Paul is having to teach this to the early church. He's having to teach it to the Corinthian church, which again was out of order in so many ways. But this is just another way they were out of order. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. The first day of the week is the Lord's day. We gather on the Lord's day and we take tithes and offerings according to this design of God for his glory and for the furtherance of the gospel as, and as an opportunity of worship as our worship leader is faithful to say every Lord's Day, he points to the offering being a time or exercise of worship. It's not just a practical opportunity to support the ongoing ministry of the gospel, which it is by God's design, but it's part of our worship of God. It's part of our exercise of love and faith in God. And so we lay something aside on the Lord's Day as part of our worship service. We pass the collection bag or some put boxes in the, in the back of the sanctuary and in keeping with the principles and pattern set forth starting in Genesis 14 and seen throughout Holy Scripture. Now let's move to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 through 7. And this is our last scripture on this. There's a few more I, I could have included. But for the sake of time, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says this. The Apostle Paul, again speaking to the church of Corinth in his second epistle, says this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so that to say we are not under a tithing law. We're under the law or the command to love God and to love neighbor. We're under the command of God that we would be cheerful givers. And we see the pattern of the tithe throughout Scripture. I remember as a new Christian asking the pastor, you know, what is this whole tithe thing? What is this stuff? You know, I was an atheist, now born again from above, going to church. I see the offering plate going by. What am I supposed to do with this? You know, what is tithe? And he said, basically what I've been telling you now for 20 minutes or 15 minutes, is that we're not under a law of tithing, but we see outside of the law a tithe given as a principle, as a design. Um, And we see in the law a tithe commanded. And then we see in the New Testament the idea of giving abundantly, giving cheerfully, giving joyfully, and it would seem when you put all of the testimony of Scripture together that giving less than the law's required tithe would not be congruous with the Spirit of God within us overflowing in love for God and love for neighbor as an expression of faith. And so generally speaking, not a law, but a principle, an example, we don't want to give less than those who gave as an act of legal obedience. We want to give as an act of love to the Lord more, or at least to that level. And that's the principle 
in my Christian life that I've sought to go by. Now, as to where you give it, generally it is the local church. Again, legalistically, no. Generally, the local church, in order to support every local church as a missionary outpost, every local church as a uh, battalion outpost, the army of God. However, does that mean that all your tithes and offerings have to go to the local church? I don't believe that the Bible requires that. I think you have some freedom to give to other ministries the Lord leads you to give to, and as the Lord leads. But we want to support, of course, the ministry of the local church where we are being blessed and where we are, we're part of, we're praying, right? You're part of the Lord's army here. You're praying for the advancement of the Lord's kingdom here. You're praying for the gospel to fill up our city. You're praying for the gospel to turn our state upside down and our state desperately needs it. We want to be dedicated to that ministry as God has designed in the local church, the ministry of the elders that we look to in the scripture while yet seeing a broader ministry and understanding the opportunity to give to that is an expression of faith and love as well. Let's let Charles Spurgeon have the final word instead of Charles O'Neill. Charles Spurgeon said this, Much has been said about giving a tenth of one's income to the Lord. Methinks that is a Christian duty which none should for a moment question. If it were a duty under the Jewish law, much more is it so now under the Christian dispensation. But it is a great mistake to suppose that the Jew only gave a tenth. He gave very, very, very much more than that. The tenth was a payment which he must make. But after that came all the free will offerings, all the various gifts of divers seasons of the year, so that perhaps he gave a third, much more near that, certainly than a tenth. I do not, however, like to lay down any rules for God's people, for the Lord's New Testament is not a great book of rules. It is not a book of the letter, for that killeth, but it's a book of the Spirit, which teacheth teacheth us rather the soul of liberality than the body of it. And instead of writing laws upon the stones of paper, it writes laws upon the heart. Give, dear friends, as you have purposed in your heart, and give proportionately as the Lord hath prospered you. And do not make your estimate what you ought to give by what will appear respectable from you or by what is expected from you by other people, but as in the sight of the Lord, as he loveth a cheerful giver. And as the cheerful giver is a proportionate giver, take care that you, like a good steward, keep just accounts toward the great king. Again, I remind you, I don't know what anyone gives. I don't want to know. I'm Blessed to serve the Lord and to trust Him in His provision for the needs of the church and for the needs of the preacher. And I praise God that He has always provided. And it's been a joy in my life to see so very often, especially in hours of real want, when Christians give, including me and my own family and others, when they give sacrificially, God's Word is true. He brings blessings. And the 90% or less that's left goes much further than the 100% ever would have gone. I have had the joy and pleasure of seeing that in our poverty, in our early marriage, in our Marine Corps years, is that we were learning what tithing was and, oh my, this is going to hurt. But it didn't. It didn't hurt because the Lord blessed us and the Lord watched over us in some very wonderful providential ways that I won't go into for the sake of time. But God's word is true. Let's walk 
in the light thereof in faith, loving the Lord and loving our neighbors and advancing the kingdom of God in the local church through God's good design in tithes and offerings. And praise God for that example that Abram set in Genesis 14 and continues through Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your grace upon our souls, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that you delivered to us down through generation after generation after generation of your church, walking in your design, advancing the kingdom and the earth until, Lord, here we are on the opposite side of the globe from where that first gospel seed was sown, from where our Lord died and rose again, conquering sin and death. Here we are, believing and preaching that same message, and seeking by your grace to advance it in our city. And we pray, Father, in this dark city, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine forth, and that a city that is famous for its rebellion against you, famous for its sin, would become famous for its holiness, famous for its universal repentance, famous for its churches that boldly preach Christ and walk in love and grace and holiness and send forth missionaries and preachers across our land. May you do this miracle, Lord, for your own glory, and may we have the privilege of being part of it, Lord. We commit it all to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.